intimidating. So I, I, as Henry VIII said to his sixth wife, I promise I will not keep you long, so don't worry about that. Um, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be tonight, John chapter 3. And tonight, uh, I'm going to preach on my favorite verse in the Bible. Um, my favorite story in the Bible is, is, a, is a story uh, that I, I like to preach from a lot, and it's more of an obscure story. I'll, I'll mention that later on tonight, but my favorite verse in the Bible is found in John chapter 3, and it's not what you're thinking. It's not in John 3.16. I think that's the greatest verse in all the Bible. Obviously, it's the, the simplistic uh, explanation of the gospel, but my favorite verse, my life verse, the verse that I sign when everyone asks me to sign their Bible or, or uh, sign whatever else they want me to sign, which hasn't really happened yet, uh, but uh, when they, they ask me to sign their Bible, maybe a kid, you know, after, after I'm preaching at, at a missions conference or something, is John chapter 3, verse number 30, and I promise you uh, you will have another verse by the end of the night uh, to add to your verse. You have mem- verses you have memorized. Uh, this is, I believe, uh, one of the simplest verses entire, in the entire Bible. Uh, you will have this verse memorized by the end of the night. It's only seven words long, and uh, it is a very simple yet very profound verse. Uh, it's very easy to understand, very hard to live. And that is why it has captivated, captivated me and convicted me so many times And if I could just get this verse down, if I could just live this verse out, then I know that by the grace of God, I will have have lived the Christian life that I was supposed to have lived. But before we get to verse number 30, I'd like to start in verse number 25 to explain uh, some of the the context. Sorry, my iPad case is coming out. To explain some of the the context uh, of the verse. So starting in verse uh, number 25. It says, then there arose a question between some of the John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And really, they're, they're speaking about baptism. And uh, they, they came unto, unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, of course, he's referring to Jesus, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. In other words, they're saying, you have your own disciples, you have a huge crowd, but now the crowd is kind of shifting towards Jesus and people are following, the people that used to be following you are, are following Jesus now and his crowd is growing and your uh, crowd uh, is shrinking. And verse number 27, And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. And so he's basically saying the influence and the popularity that Jesus is, is developing is something that is being given to him by God the Father. And so there's, there's nothing I have to complain about. There's nothing I have to, be argue, to argue about, nothing I have to, je- to be jealous about. It's God's will that these people would follow him. And really my whole goal was to get people to follow him. John the Baptist's goal was not to grant, gain a crowd of disciples that would follow him. His, his goal was to point out the Lamb of God, which gonna, was going to to take away the sin of the world. And he was prophesied in the Old Testament. He was the one that was supposed to come and be the voice crying in the wilderness, make way, uh, make, make, way the, make straight the, the path of the Lord, uh, the way of the Lord. And he is preparing the way for Jesus Christ to come. And his whole goal of his life was to point people not to himself, but hey, I'm nothing. Hey, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is Jesus. And I'm trying to point you guys towards him. And that was his whole purpose. That was his whole goal in life. In verse uh, number 20, uh, Going back to verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. 
This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And he's saying, I'm not, uh, I'm not the center of attention like the bride or the groom is. I'm just the best man. I'm just the one who's supposed to do the work behind the scenes to prepare uh, for the people that are actually important, the people that actually are significant. In verse number 30, of course, he gives uh, his motto, really the motto that, that really uh, signifies uh, his life. And I really believe that this was the motto of John the Baptist's life. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Maybe we can say that, uh, that verse together. It's ready to begin. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity again to be in church tonight. I do pray that uh, you will uh, help the church to forgive me for uh, being born in California and liking the 49ers. I pray that that won't be a cause of conflict tonight, and I pray that uh, you'd be uh, with the service. Help me to preach. I pray that you do with your spirit and do with your word what I can't do in my flesh. I pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that you'd speak to every heart. So I pray, every heart, I pray that you'd in, help us to enjoy the time uh, to, to together tonight uh, in fellowship afterwards. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This is my favorite verse, as I said, in the Bible, and I've seen this verse sometimes. Uh, I've seen a lot of churches kind of develop this as their theme of the year, and I, and I love that. And I love going into churches and seeing that, but sometimes I think, hey, that, man, that's my verse. Pastor, I don't know what you're thinking. That's my verse. It's supposed to be my theme verse. I don't know why you're taking my verse. And, but what I've seen a lot of times is they take the first part, and that's their theme of the year. He must increase. And I think if we take this verse and let it be our theme verse, maybe for, from, from January to, to June, it should be he must increase. Uh, but we can't forget the second half of the verse. We can't forget the middle of the verse, that, that significant word that, complete, that, that, that serves as the middle, really the transition point uh, in the verse. But he must increase, but I must decrease. This has got to happen, but in order for this to happen, this has got to happen. And maybe from July to December, the theme should be, I must decrease. It's, not, it, it, it's all about him. He's got to increase. But in order for that to happen, I've got to be willing to say, Lord, I'm willing to decrease. I'm willing for the things of this world in my life to become smaller. I'm willing to become smaller so that you can become greater. And so many times, I, and I'm guilty of this myself, and I certainly was earlier on in, in my Christian life, we develop this perception of how we want the Christian life to go. We want it to be an elevator. I want God to be glorified in my life. I want him to increase, but I want to increase with him. I want my life to be about him, and I want to get some of the glory too. The Christian life is not an elevator. It's a teeter-totter. In order for one to go up, the other one's got to go down. The other one's not going to go up unless the other one goes down. And we've got to be willing to say, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll get on the one side of the teeter-totter. I'll go down. I'll let my name uh, be nothing so that your name can be something. Yeah. I think of Adoniram Judson. He is my favorite missionary uh, that I've ever read about. I, I love the story of Adoniram Judson. And he was an extremely brilliant man. He was, uh, as a teenager, he was teaching adult Sunday school, and he was teaching it from the Greek language. Uh, I, believe, I forget the age he was. He was somewhere around 12 or 13 years old, and he was teaching uh, Greek Sunday school to, to adults. He was a very extremely intelligent, very gifted man, and, and God used him to, you know, when he went to the mission field, he, he translated the Bible and made a, a dictionary uh, to, to, so that, to translate from uh, Burmese and English and, and vice versa. 
But in, in his young life, it took a while for, for him to get to the point where he surrendered to go to the mission field. He went to, to Burma, which was a very uh, dangerous place back then. It was a, a place with a lot of conflict, and, and uh, it was a place where it wasn't very pleasant, the humidity and uh, the heat there and the lack of, uh, of the, the resources that, are, that were in, uh, you know, first world country would just made it very unbearable. Uh, his wife uh, just, man, she, she just had a, a very difficult time. Uh, while they were there in Burma, he spent uh, with his first wife, uh, he had three different wives at, at different times. Uh, his first wife died eventually, and then his second wife passed away, and he ended up uh, with, a, with a third wife because uh, of the, the illnesses they contracted uh, because of the weather, because of the conditions, and because of the, the lack, of, um, the, the, the lack of, of resources there. But earlier on in his life, he was not about the whole missions thing. And he really kind of got a, a grip of his intelligence and his gifts, and he thought, man, I'm going to do something big with my life. And the thought of being a preacher, it came into his mind, but he just dismissed it because he realized, you know what, it doesn't matter how great of a preacher you are, it doesn't matter how well you preach, I'm never going to be able to, be, to have a position uh, to pastor a church where my name was going to be big enough where I want it to be. And he thought, being a preacher, that, that sounds good, that's what my dad was, that's what my dad is, but, but I want something bigger. I want something that's going to require more greatness, and I want to do something great with my life. And God, and I won't tell the whole story, but God really broke him down, and he, ha he came to a point where he surrendered his life, and, and he was one of the very first Americans to go to the foreign field, go to the mission field. He was a pioneer missionary, not just to Burma, but really uh, to, to the third world, third world countries as a whole. And he got to a point where he was willing to say, Lord, I'll, I'll decrease, I'll go to this land where people don't like Christianity, where I'm going to spend years in prison, where I'm almost going to die from torture in prison, or I'm going to be uh, hanging, for, according to some accounts, hanging from my pinkies, where I'm uh, going to, uh, have, to have my wife uh, sneak into the prison to, to sneak, sneak me some food, uh, where I'm going to uh, spend seven years before I have one convert. Lord, I'm willing to decrease so that you can increase. I remember there was a time in my life when, and I, and I touched on this morning, but even after I was called to preach, I went into Bible college thinking, man, I'm, I, I had good grades. I went to a good university. I, I gave that up to come here. Now that I'm going into the ministry, I might as well do something big with it. I might as well, since I'm going into the ministry, I'm going to make a big name for myself. I'm going to get through Bible college. I'm going to go start a church. I'm going to start a big church. I'm going to be a big name preacher. I'm going to be invited to preach at all these different conferences and, and rallies and things like that. And I'm going to build a big name for myself. And I didn't pronounce that out loud, but inside of my heart, that's really some of the intentions that I had. And God got me to the point where he said, hey, it's not about building your name. It's about building my name. And he helped me realize that there's nothing bigger I could possibly do and go to the other side of the world and tell people, not about me, but to tell people about him. And over when I get to Africa, nobody's going to know my name. I'm not going to have the opportunity to preach at big conferences and, and rallies. But I'm going to go there and I'm going to tell people about Jesus. And it's going to take some decreasing. I'm going to leave the luxuries of America. And I'm going to, uh, and even right now, you know, we don't have a home. We don't have, well, right now we do for the next couple of days, and we like it. It's really nice. Uh, but, but we don't really have a home. We don't have a house or an apartment that's really, we call it a home. We're living out of our car, living out of our suitcase. And, and when we get to Africa, we're going to have to deal with electricity only being on half, half the day, on a good day. Sometimes it'll be out for four or five days at a time. We're going to have to not go outside at night because of the safety issue. We're going to have to know that uh, there are people in the northern part of the country that if they kind of take over, you know, life is going to get very difficult. We might have to leave. We're going to have to deal with some luxuries. It's going to take some decreasing. 
But in, when it's all said and done, Jesus Christ is going to be increased. And if, it's, if, it's, if Jesus is going to increase, then it is worth my decreasing. And John the Baptist said, you know, it's not about me. I don't care how small I get. I don't care how unpopular I get. I don't care if my, if my crowd uh, that is following me stops following me and they start following Jesus. That was the whole point. It's not about me. It's all about him. He's got to get bigger. And in order for that to happen, I've got to get smaller. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And in order for that to happen, there are three things that must take place. There are three things that must take place. Number one, we must be willing to diminish. We must be willing to diminish. Look at verse uh, number 26. Verse 26, And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. As I mentioned before, the crowd was leaving John, and they were starting to become not John's disciples, but Jesus' disciples, and his popularity and his fame and his crowd were diminishing so that the crowd and the popularity and the fame and the knowledge of Jesus could increase, could expand. And in order for Jesus to be glorified, in order for Jesus to increase, uh, he had to be willing to let his crowd, his popularity diminish. And there might be something in our lives where God is saying, if you really want to be glorified, if you really want me to be glorified in your life, you're going to have to be willing to let this aspect of your life diminish. If, you're gonna, uh, if I'm going to be lifted up, if Jesus is going to be lifted up in Nigeria and Thailand and China and Mexico, if the gospel is going to be spread over there so that the name of Jesus Christ can be lifted up in those countries, your bank account might have to diminish a little bit so that we can get over there, that we can help those missionaries get over there. Uh, there, there might be someone in this room that uh, maybe God is going to say, if, you, if the gospel is going to get over there, if, the, if my name is going to be glorified and lifted up over there, I'm gonna, you're going to have to diminish uh, maybe some of the aspirations that you had for your life. And you're going to have to answer the call and say, hey, Lord, I, I will go. I think of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, a very uh, famous verse we use uh, for missions, a very famous passage that we use to, to preach on missions. Of course, uh, Isaiah sees a, a wonderful, uh, really, I believe, um, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus Christ, and he sees God's glory. He sees how awesome and how holy God is, and he sees how, how, how uh, little and how uh, unholy he is, and he responds and he says, Here am I, Lord. I see the need of Israel. Here am I. Send me. And what's interesting about that passage is that God never tells Isaiah to go. Isaiah saw the need and he said, Lord, I volunteer. I wonder if there's anyone in here that would say, Lord, I volunteer to let whatever you want in my life to diminish so that you can increase. So that you can increase. I love the passage in 2 Corinthians 12. I won't have you turn there for sake of time but because uh, I'm trying to get you guys to the chili. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians 12, we have the passage of uh, Paul talking about the, uh, the thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what this was, some kind of a physical ailment or disease, or maybe it was blindness, maybe it was headaches. There's all these different commentaries that tell you different things. We don't really know exactly what it is. It doesn't really matter. We know that there was something that he struggled with, something that caused a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. And he said, for, uh, uh, for this, I, I, I prayed, I, I prayed uh, three times. I besought the Lord thrice for this, that it might depart from me. But the Lord said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. He said, Lord, please take this away from me. It's bothering me. It's hindering me. Please take it out of my life. And God said, no, uh, my grace is sufficient uh, for you. 
And God allowed that to continue in his life and his comfort diminished and his maybe his ability to see diminished. But we've got to understand the purpose for why God allowed that thorn in the flesh. In verse 7 of that chapter, it says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the, of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. When people saw Paul preach, they saw his thorn in the flesh, and they didn't think really anything of him. They noticed that the Holy Spirit was all upon him, but no one really thought highly of Paul himself as a speaker. And the, Lord, the reason why God gave this to him is because he had all these revelations. Obviously, Paul wrote more uh, New Testament than anyone else, and God had given him so many, so many revelations of Scripture. And God said, so that people don't think too highly of you and not of me, I'm going to give you the thorn in the flesh so that when people hear you preach, they don't think of you, they think of me. And because of this thorn in the, in the flesh, yes, Paul diminished, but because of that, Jesus was glorified. And sometimes in order for Jesus to increase, we've got to be willing to let something in our life diminish. Maybe our reputation, maybe there are people who go to school, maybe uh, people who uh, have a workplace where it's not real popular to be a Christian. In order for God to be glorified in our workplace or, or in our school, maybe it's going to uh, cause us some diminishing of our reputation. But if it, Jesus has increased, it's worth our diminishing. We've got to be willing to diminish. Number two, we must understand who we really are. We must understand who we really are. Verse number 28, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He's making it clear. Hey, let me make this clear. This is not about me. I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one. Yes, I am prophesied in the Old Testament, but I'm prophesied not as the Messiah, not as the one who's going to come take away the sins of the world. I'm just the one who's supposed to come and tell people about the Messiah. I'm just, and with someone uh, in John chapter one, where people asking, were asking John, you know, who are you? Are you Elias? Are you that prophet? Who, who are you? And he said, he basically said, don't, don't worry about who I am. You don't even need to know my name. It's not important. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, be, be, prepare the way of the Lord. All I am is a voice trying to point people to him. I am a nothing. It's not about me. It's about him. I don't need the recognition. I don't need uh, the praise. It's not about uh, me uh, building a strong reputation. It's about me pointing people towards Jesus. He understood who he was. He understood that there was nothing special about him. He was just a weird man living out in the wilderness, eating locusts uh, with a loincloth. He was just a man who was willing to say, I, I don't need to be known highly. All I need is for Jesus Christ to be glorified. I think of Saul, Saul, not Saul who came, became Paul, but Saul in the Old Testament, the very first king of Israel. And we know him as a bad king, and he really was a bad king, but he started off great. The very beginning of his reign, he was a great king, and he established Israel as a very strong nation. People started fearing Israel because of all the war victories, and they thought, man, there's something special about Israel over there. And when he was first called to be the king. Samuel, uh, who was really God's messenger, he came to Saul and said, hey, the people of Israel have been asking God to, to, to anoint a king. And, they, and God doesn't want to have a king. He wants it to be a theocracy where God is the king. But the people are insistent, we want a human king. And so God has, has given in to, to their request, and, and you are the person that he has chosen. Saul, you are going to be the first king of Israel. And you know what his response was? Hey, you got the wrong guy. 
I'm, the small, I'm from the smallest family, from the smallest tribe of Israel. There's no way I could be the king of Israel. There's no way I'm the one that God has called to, to rule over uh, this nation. But of course, uh, that was the person that God had chosen. And, and when it came time to anoint him, he was nowhere to be found. He was hiding because he, he, was so caught, he, he was so intimidated because he understood that there was nothing special about him. And he thought that there's no way I could possibly be the king. But he becomes the king and he starts having victories and he gets off to a great start. And there came, comes to a point in a, a time when he starts to let all of his success kind of come to his head. And, and there was an assignment that Samuel gave him. He said, hey, uh, God wants a vengeance on the Amalekites. I want you to go and completely wipe them out. And, and Saul uh, goes and they have a great victory, but he partially obeys God. He leaves the king alive. He takes away, uh, he keeps, takes some of the, the animals and said, well, those are good animals. We're going to go and, and make sacrifices with them. And Samuel comes to him and said, hey, you, you did not fully obey the Lord. And by the way, when you partially obey the Lord, you're fully disobeying the Lord. And, and, he's, and he, he's telling him, hey, God has refused you. God has rejected you now from being the king. And we know that Saul still remained king in terms of the position. He was the king of Israel for several years after that, but he lost the presence of God. And so in God's eyes, he was no longer the king. But it's interesting because in, in, uh, in, in, that, in, that, in 1 Samuel 15, 17, it's, Samuel's talking to him and he said, And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? See, what happened was, was Saul saw all these victories he was having. He thought, man, I am a great king. I, I, I'm great. I, I'm accomplished. I, I, I'm, I'm very competent. And leading this people, and he got so big-headed that he thought, I'm big enough to disobey God. And Samuel said, hey, remember when God called you to be king? And you were little in your own sight, and you thought, there's no way, I'm the, uh, there's no way I could be the right guy. I, there's, there's nothing special. I'm from the smallest family from the smallest tribe. Uh, I'm, I'm nothing. And, he, and basically, when he got to the point where when he was no longer small in his own sight, that's when he reached the point where God said, I can't use him anymore. I no longer see him as my king. And when we get to the point when we, when we think that we're something big, when we cease to be small in our own sight, that's when God says, man, can't use you anymore. We've got to understand who we are in light of who Jesus is. We've got to be willing to, to decrease. We've got to understand uh, who we really are. Number three, in order for Jesus Christ to increase, we must have a greater love for Christ than we have for ourselves. We must have a greater love for Christ than for ourselves. Look in uh, verse number 29. Uh, uh, the, uh, John uh, the, uh, the Baptist gives a, a wonderful illustration. And he says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. And so he's giving this picture, basically, uh, in the Old Testament time, in, in Jewish culture, uh, in, in American culture, you know, the, 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 uh, the bride, what, what, the maid of honor, is that the, 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 bride, the, the bride's, I'm tripping right now, maid of honor, right? That's the, the main girl for the, the bride. So she is the one who does a lot of the preparation work. But in, in a Jewish wedding, uh, the best man, also known as the, uh, he was called the friend of the bridegroom. He was the one who did uh, all of the prep work. He did the legwork. He handed out the invitations. He prepared for the ceremony. He prepared for the reception afterward. He was the one who did all of the work behind the scenes. And there's a, a description there 
uh, which I won't uh, go into an explanation of at the end uh, of the passage uh, for, uh, for sake of it being uh, regarding um, consummation, and you can kind of think about that your own self, uh, but uh, he's basically guarding the, the uh, he's basically guarding the uh, the, the, the chamber where, you know, they were going to have their honeymoon in and basically waiting for the, the, the bridegroom's voice and he was going to let, let him in. And I won't go into any more detail for, uh, about that. But basically, uh, he's saying, you know, the, the, Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm just the person who's willing to, to uh, do all the work behind the scenes. I'm willing to have no name. I'm willing to have no recognition. I'm willing to not have any speeches given about me. It's not about me. My sole purpose is to see him have a great Great day in regards to a, to a wedding. And really, my whole purpose is to make sure uh, that Jesus Christ is lifted up. My whole purpose uh, and what brings me joy is bringing, uh, gr- bringing honor to Christ. And he said, that's the whole purpose of, uh, of what I'm here for. My, I get so much joy from, from uh, glorifying Christ. And really, the, the wedding is, has nothing to do with, uh, with the, the friend of the bridegroom, with the, with the best man. It's not about him. It's all about the bride and the groom. But he was probably the happiest uh, person there if he had the spirit of John the Baptist. Because he loved the bridegroom more than he loved himself. And John the Baptist loved Jesus more than he loved himself. I wonder... How strong is our love for Christ? When was the last time we just said, Lord, Jesus, I just want to tell you, I love you. I love you. One of the greatest illustrations uh, that I see in the Bible in regards to someone loving Christ is the, the story of the alabaster box. And that is my favorite story in, in the Bible. It's my favorite story to preach on. And I love uh, telling the story of this lady and, and her, this story. Uh, there are three different account, three different stories that take place. There's one in Matthew chapter 26. There's one in Mark 14. Those tell the same story of a lady whose name we don't know. Then there's Luke chapter 7, which tells another story of someone who does something very similar uh, in, er, in the earlier part of Jesus' ministry. And then John chapter 12, we have the more, maybe the more familiar story of, of Mary of Bethany uh, breaking a box and pouring oil uh, on Jesus' feet. But in Matthew uh, chapter 14, uh, 26 in Mark 14, we have this lady, we don't know her name, but she pours uh, oil onto Jesus' head and she breaks this alabaster box. And we know that this is worth 300 pence, basically a whole year's salary. We don't know how she obtained it, if, she, if it was a family heirloom, if she saved years uh, for a long time to, to, to purchase this box of ointment. But it was very expensive. It was very precious. She knew that Jesus was about to be crucified just in a few days later. She knew that this is my last chance to show Jesus Christ that I love him. This is going to be my last opportunity opportunity to have a face-to-face uh, reaction with him. And so she comes out in the middle of a feast, which was a big deal back then. She comes out in the middle of the feast while the food, for the food is hot. And she basically uh, comes out and just breaks this box. This box was uh, alabaster, basically kind of like a ceramic sort of a substance. And so it wasn't something you can just kind of unscrew. It was something that you would shatter, you would break, it would make a noise. The Bible says that the odor of the ointment filled the house. So it was something that everybody smelt, everybody heard, and everybody saw. And she interrupts this feast when people are just excited to finally eat the meal that they had waited for hours and hours to, to eat and, and it, it was going to cause them to have to let their food become cold. But Jesus basically says, you can interrupt this feast because what you're about to do is way more important to me than anything else going on in this room. And so he lets her interrupt the feast. She comes, breaks the box and pours out this oil. And really she's pouring out her reputation because everyone in the room is criticizing her, chewing her up and spitting her out and really hating her for what she's doing. And really the apostles have indignation on her, righteous anger, not righteous anger, furious anger why are you interrupting my feast really why are you showing that you love Jesus more than I do 
And she pours out her reputation. She pours out her dignity. She pours out her, her possession. She pours everything that she has out. And the, the, the common act of hospitality is, was you would, you would take about two or three drops and, and pour perfume on someone's uh, body because of the perspiration that, was, that presided over everybody. They didn't take a bath every, uh, every day and showers didn't exist. And so people uh, had a lot of perspiration on their body. You would, usually if you had an honored guest, you'd take about two or three drops and kind of put it on their head uh, kind of as an act of hospitality. Uh, but she, she pours the whole thing out because she knows this is my last chance. And so Jesus, hey, I love you and I just want to thank you for what you are about to do for me on the cross and he says uh, he says in response and uh, really and as he's defending this lady as the the apostles and other people are criticizing her uh, in the room he says uh, what she has done is going to be recorded as a memorial for her and he's basically saying that what she did is going to be recorded in my book so that uh, wherever this gospel is preached this shall be spoken of as a memorial for her. So wherever this, this, this Bible is preached throughout the whole world, there's on any given Sunday night or Sunday morning, maybe a Wednesday night or maybe a Tuesday night devotional, somebody's probably going to be preaching from her story. And she's been in heaven for 2,000 years, but God is still using her on earth. That is what happens when, that is the kind of way in which God can use you uh, when you're in heaven and God's still using you on earth. Those are the kind of ways that God can use you when you live the life of John the Baptist where it's all about him and it's not about me. She loved Jesus more than she loved herself and John the Baptist loved Jesus more than he loved himself. And John the Baptist decreased. We know shortly after this verse is recorded shortly after he, he, he gives this statement. Of course, uh, he's in prison and then he's beheaded. And he decreased, but because of what he did, Jesus Christ was greatly glorified. And Jesus increased because he was willing to decrease. Muhammad Ali kind of takes the cake for the most prideful athlete in history. I mean, LeBron is, is close. He's up there. But Muhammad Ali was just known as always just proclaiming, I am the greatest. And he was on an airplane. And this is, according to his biographer, he literally uh, told the, the stewardess one time, I don't need a seatbelt because Superman don't need the, no seatbelt. And the stewardess said, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. And he was someone who was just full of himself. He really thought he was basically uh, a god. And, of course, he, he, he had much success. Uh, most people would say he's the greatest boxer of all time. He had all these trophies, all these championships. And, and years after his career, when uh, his body was, was nowhere uh, what it was during the height of his career. Uh, someone, a sports illustrator came and, and, and uh, a sports illustrator, sports illustrator reporter came to his house and, and interviewed him. And he uh, was showing him around his house and he showed him his gym. He threw a few jabs at his gym, uh, basically all that he could handle. And then he took him to his house and showed him around. And then he took him uh, out into the barn in his backyard. And out in the barn, he saw all these trophies all these, these posters, all this memorabilia, and they all had cobwebs. They all had pigeon droppings on them. And he walked down the hallway of the barn just kind of turning those, those posters towards the wall. And he walked outside of the barn, Muhammad Ali did, and just with a face of disappointment. And the reporter asked him, he said, what's going on? Why are you turning those all around? And he said, and I quote, I had the world but it wasn't nothing. And here we have someone who lived his life for his increase. He lived his life so that he could be glorified instead of Christ 
being glorified. And if you look at uh, the end of his life in, in comparison to the end of the life of John the Baptist, yes, John the Baptist was in prison. Yes, he lived a life without luxury. Uh, yes, he, uh, he was beheaded at the end of his life. But really, just a few days before he was beheaded, he, he gets the greatest compliment that was ever served to any person in the history of the world. Jesus himself said about him, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Muhammad Ali lived for the praise of the world, but John the Baptist died with the praise of the Lord. I wonder when it comes time for our lives to be over, whose praise will we have? That of the world or that of the Lord? I hope we will live a life according to the motto of John the Baptist where he said, he must increase. It's all about him. My life, my finances, my reputation, the time that I have, the, every breath that I, that I breathe, it's all about him. Because, by the way, Jesus decreased. He came down from heaven and he lived in, uh, in this world. And the, the omnipotent creator of the universe became a human being, took upon the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. He was taught by finite minds, even though he was the God of the universe. He decreased. He came from heaven and died on an old rugged cross in this dusty, crummy, sin-filled earth so that we could increase and spend all of eternity with heaven, in heaven with him. And if Jesus Christ was willing to decrease so that we could increase. I think it's safe to say we should be willing to de decrease so that he could increase. Pastor. Let's all stand tonight with heads bowed, eyes closed.